Hi, you are now listening to a sermon from Harvest Community Church in Hoffman Estates, Illinois. Today you will hear a sermon from Pastor Dave Lee, so without further ado, here he is. Morning. Just out of curiosity, uh, how many of you were fasting from something during Lent? Okay. So I just want you to know that um, it's a little known fact, but those who truly want to see God work continue for 40 days after Easter to keep fasting. From the, uh, I just had to do something to take advantage of Sunday falling on an April Fool's Day. About, I think, must have been 13, 15 years ago, uh, we also had a Sunday that was on April Fool's Day, and I was a younger, stupider man, and I announced to the church that I had taken a new job at another church, and that it was my last Sunday, and half the church gasped and half the church cheered. I don't know (laughs) what that means exactly, but uh, I didn't do anything that foolish today. Uh, Hopefully, you are ready in all of the right ways for all the right reasons to celebrate the closing of Lent and the celebration that Easter brings. I know that Jeannie is probably going to chug a two-liter bottle of soda at lunch. Uh, and maybe, maybe when some of you have recovered from the chocolate sugar high, um, you'll realize what a great day it is. In fact, Easter is the most well-attended Sunday across the world in Christian churches. It's like the Super Bowl of the church world, and rightly so because on Easter Sunday, we celebrate what is really the most important truth in all our faith. And this morning, if you can flesh that, the, the title of the message is The Power of His Resurrection. That is what we celebrate today, and I want to explore what that means in general just a little bit. But more importantly, I want to explore what that means for us personally, each one of us. What the resurrection power of Jesus actually means for you and me. The text I'm going to draw from is Philippians 3. I'm going to start from the second half of verse 4 and go through verse 11. Here's what it says. If someone else thinks, and this is the Apostle Paul testifying about himself, If someone else thinks that they have reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law, a Pharisee. As for zeal, persecuting the church, as for righteousness, based on the law, faultless. But whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss. For the sake of Christ, what is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage, that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. I want to know Christ, yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. I don't know what comes to your mind when you hear the word resurrection. Maybe you think of the walking dead. 
certainly, zombies have become a thing in our world, in our culture. And I think a lot of young kids actually believe they're real. That's not really the kind of raising from the dead we're talking about. It is not a corpse walking around. It is a dead being coming fully back to life. Now, history is filled with, with quote-unquote, documented cases of dead people coming back to life. They make movies about the things they saw when they went towards the light and then came back. But every one of those people has died again or will die again. The difference with Jesus, the reason his resurrection stands alone, is that he didn't just come back from death. He wasn't resuscitated. He has beaten death and remains alive and will never die again. In fact, the resurrection is so important to the Christian faith. Listen to what the Apostle Paul writes in his letter to the Corinthians. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching, he's talking about his team of ministers, our preaching is useless and so is your faith. That's a pretty powerful statement. He's saying that if you take away the resurrection, I mean, you can take away a lot of things in Christianity, but if you take away the resurrection, you have completely undone Christianity at its foundation. You've knocked the legs out from under it. I heard a fascinating statement on Moody Radio this past weekend. I'm just going to steal it shamelessly. Here's what the guy said. He said in his radio show, kind of summing up, he said, we've been exploring the death and resurrection of Jesus from an archaeological perspective. And I was like, oh boy, wake me up when that's done. It sounded so boring until he said this. If an archaeologist could dig up a grave somewhere in Israel and prove conclusively that the body contained inside was the corpse of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, if they could do that, if they could produce the crucified and now dead corpse of Jesus of Nazareth, in that very moment, the global movement called Christianity would die. It would come to an end. It would be like a flat earther being launched into the atmosphere and going, all right, we we're all wrong. I can't believe flat earthers still exist. If you're a flat earther and I've offended you, Buy me lunch, and I'll show you my globe. (laughs) Listen, it's that kind of paradigm shift of a person uh, who thought something was true, and then the, the foundational core truth that held up everything else was chopped away. You would have no Christianity. It doesn't matter that we own billions and billions of dollars in property all over the world, that we have thousands of years of history, carefully laid out documents. Rules, structures, denominations, all of it would go away in an instant if you take away the resurrection of Jesus. It's clear that the resurrection of Jesus is very important to the existence of the Christian faith in general. But I think for most of us sitting here, the more important or pressing question is, so what does it have to do with me? I've been there, done that, I believe it, yes, he... There's an empty tomb somewhere in Israel. Jesus is risen, but so what? I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand, but I'm going to make a confession. For years and years before I became a pastor, and I'm going to be transparent, for a couple years after I became a pastor, 
I really struggle to figure out what's the big deal with Easter. Now, I knew theologically it was a big deal. And I knew that everyone, for some reason, pulled out their dusty sports coats and ties. They dressed like they were going to work for the first time in the year. And they came to church that way. And I knew everybody understood, even people who are as far from God and the church as possible, still out of superstition, will come and they'll visit a church on that Easter Sunday. And I thought, why does everybody think Easter is so important? And I'm not talking about intellectually, but why do some people seem extra happy? Have you ever seen like those people who are... Easter giddy, they're just, happy Easter. And you're like, wow, I don't know what you believe or what you see, but I need some of that. And I struggled. But here's the thing, as I've looked more and more at the resurrection and its personal implications, my heart is coming alive. I understand why Easter is such a big deal. And I want to explore, and there's so much in the text that we just read together, I can't possibly touch all of it. I want to, I want to point out two very important things. Did I just do two? two? <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I had acknowledged it or some of you would be distracted the rest of the sermon. Two important things that come out of this text that relate to why the resurrection of Jesus should have any significance for me on a personal level. And the first is going to sound really simple and trite, but it's this. It means that we can actually know Christ. I think it's tempting to think of Jesus as a historical figure. And when we think about any historical figure, usually what we're talking about is an important dead person. That's what we mean, right, by historical figure. Um, It's somebody who is dead but left a big mark on the human race. And if you want to get to know a historical figure, you really only have a couple choices. You can study everything that was ever researched and written about them until you have a feeling of who they are, at least what made them tick, what happened in their lives. And the second thing you might want to do is journey through the places they've been. I'm a big fan of doing stuff like that. Not everybody is, but I get goosebumps when I stand on the same ground that someone I admire, someone historical, said, oh yeah, you know, John Calvin once stood on the steps of this church. I'm like, what? Really? The I'm standing, maybe I'm standing on the exact spot. That's why I can't wait to go to Israel. Just to walk some of the, I want to, when I was in Turkey, I wanted so badly to do the, the tour of the churches that the Apostle Paul planted. The ruins are still there. To just stand on the ground and picture Paul standing in the middle of a, a stadium, shouting at the people that they must know God. And if you walk the path that others have walked, sometimes there's this weird feeling that you can smell their spirit. That you, and, and in a way, if you are a very diligent biographer, you can come to a place where you feel like you really know this dead person. Like you could finish their sentences. You could write their last book that they never finished because you're in their head. But even so, if you become the world's leading expert on a historical figure, that is not the same thing as a relationship. That's a very one-sided deal. It's you learning about a person who has revealed everything there was to reveal before they checked out. They're not around to tell you you got it all wrong. I'm not like that. I'm a little funnier than you make me out to be, and so on and so forth. The thing about a resurrection, the thing about the resurrection of Jesus is that he isn't dead anymore. That's not a metaphor. That's what Crawford Loritz taught me this morning driving to church. 
It's not a metaphor. It's a real thing, which means this Jesus, who should be dead, is actually alive. He is a living, present person now, here. Which then tells me that when I want to get to know Jesus, I don't have to know him the way you might study a historic figure who is dead and passed on. See, I want to go to Israel to walk the places where Jesus walked, but I also know that in my present reality, Jesus walks with me in Bartlett, Illinois, every day. That's amazing to me. It's amazing that I can actually know him, and there is an unfolding revelation, a newness, an ongoing joy of actually relating to him. And I know for some people in this room, that's become a very frustrating idea to hear about because you have tried it and never quite gotten to a place where you feel like Jesus is real and you know him. I just want to share, if that's your heart, I want to tell you not to give up. You know, I've shared before that when I was in college, a friend of mine tried to teach me how to play guitar and he said, you're playing your rinky-dink chords, but you haven't really learned guitar until you learn these bar chords. And he showed me, he's like, dun, 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 and he's sliding up and down, and it made it look so easy. And I tried, and I almost broke my fingers. I said, no, no, human anatomy wasn't designed to do that weird, that or my fingers can't do it. And he goes, no, trust me, it's hard for everyone at first, but you will get it. And I tried and tried. When, you got to know, when I was younger, like... If I really set my mind to something, I went for it. And I tried. I tried that stupid bar chord for like an hour to two hours a day. And I thought I was going to get permanent arthritis. And one day I was ready to throw my guitar against the wall. I just said, this is not possible. People can't do this. And then my friend kept coming over and goes, no, seriously, you can, look at me. And the fact that this monkey could do it, this guy, I'm like, if you can do it, It stands in my face as proof that it is doable. That as elusive as it seems to me, the fact that you can do it urges me to press on because it can be had. It can be done. Others have done it, and there is no reason that I cannot. The only mistake I could make is checking out of the process too early because I'm frustrated and disappointed. Here is the truth. Because Jesus lives right now, you can know him right now. And even if that feels a thousand miles away, don't give up. Because the fact that he is alive means it is possible to know him. You know, Paul says in the earlier part of this passage that there were once many things that gave him great confidence and standing in his society. And he lists them all. He says, these things, if you had this stuff on your spiritual resume, you'd walk tall. And what he says is, something happened to me when I met, when I encountered Jesus of Nazareth. In one moment, upon meeting him, everything got turned upside down. I I was messed up. It was as if everything I once valued deeply, held in front of me as my introduction to the world, suddenly just went away, and I realized only one thing really matters now. It is to know Christ and to gain him. That word gain speaks to appropriating or grabbing onto something or someone as your very own 
through investment. What's happening there? Maybe you're starting to fall asleep, so let me grab you back with a, an earthy analogy. It's not so different from when a young man falls in love with a young lady. This happened to me. Maybe it has happened to you, but there was a time in my life when I was happy by myself. I was just like, I don't need nobody, nothing. I, I got a car. I got a, a great job. I got everything I need. And then, Jeannie. And she put her spell on me. She hexed me. And the funny thing about falling in love is overnight, it turns your whole world upside down. The economy completely changes. The way you look at things or measure things completely changes. If that didn't happen for you, dig deeper. It's there. It's supposed to. See, at some point, you fall in love and suddenly everything you once thought valuable only has value now if it is useful to gain the one your heart has fallen in love with. If I had Eleanor, the $250,000 souped-up Mustang Fastback on Gone in 60 Seconds, which is one of my absolute lifetime dream cars. If I owned that car, and I, you know, next best thing, I, I rented, I was at a conference in Anaheim, and at the rental place, they gave me a Mustang GT 5.0. Just turning the ignition on, touched my heart. It touched my heart. And every second I was not at the conference, I was driving. I didn't have any place to go. I just had to drive that car. And if I owned the original Eleanor, and Jeannie said, just in passing, this car's so noisy and bumpy, I hate it. Tomorrow, Prius time. Buick Roadmaster time. Quiet, smooth, unobtrusive. Do you understand that's the nature of conversion? We talk about conversion like it's some mystical switch that gets flipped in a a million miles away, in a galaxy far, far away. Conversion is right here in the place you live. Something is converted. Something is changed. Everything looks different. And the stuff you once valued, you look at it and go, whatever, there's only one thing I want and need, and everything else is in the service of that great desire. That's what Paul is testifying when he says, that was what I had happen to me when I encountered Jesus of Nazareth. And what he says in verse 10 really helps us understand this is not just a new investment strategy. He's not saying, I want to lay hold of Christ because that's where the power is. He's saying, something happened to me where I want it. That word want is a word of yearning, of deep heart desire. He doesn't, he's not just curious intellectually about Jesus of Nazareth. He sees in Jesus of Nazareth a being so compelling and attractive. All he can think about is there's more to him. I need more. I want to know more. Every time he affects me, he touches me, he's present with me, something deep down in me changes. I feel it in my soul. Now, all of us know somebody who when we're around them, most of the time, our lives just get better. 
They make us feel different. They lift our spirits. They raise our nobility a little bit. You feel classed up every time you go and have dinner with this person or this couple. You're like, oh, that was awesome. We feel like fancy people today. Because there's something about certain people just leave such a mark on you. There's a fragrance, an aroma, an atmosphere they cast that touches everyone around them. And Jesus is like that times a thousand. When you really have a profound experience of the presence and love of Jesus, it marks you in the deepest possible way. And if you chase after him with your whole heart, if you yearn for him, every now and then, he will grant you the kind of experience that you'll want to write songs about. I've had a few in my life that have marked me, got me to actually journal. I am not a journaler. Every night, I have this plaguing reminder go off on my computer and my phone, my watch, right in your journal. And for the last two months, I've ignored it because I just can't seem to keep that habit. I don't know why. I love journaling. I hate journaling. It's, a, it's just a weird schizophrenic thing. But once in a while, God has granted me such a profound sense of him. Like, you feel it. I, I don't know how to describe it. Would you raise your hand if you just have felt that before at some point in your life? It just, he washes over you and you can't, you can't shake it. He's just all over you, on you. He's, he fills you and you just feel something like he's here. And it hasn't been every day. It's been once in a very long while. But when it happens, it marks me for a really long time. And I can't guarantee I'll have an experience like that by yearning for him any more than I can guarantee that some girl will fall in love with me because I yearn for her. But here's the crazy thing. If you yearn for God, he also delights to visit you with his presence. He's not running from us. He's running towards us. And when we yearn and hunger for him, I know this, I can't make him give me an experience like that, but in my experience and as I survey history, he gives that kind of experience most often to those who relentlessly hunger after him. In other words, God seems to give that gift of his special presence not to the tourists in his kingdom, but to the immigrants. Does that make sense to you? If you're an American living in Paris and you see Americans visiting Paris, you feel kind of disdainful of them, you know? (laughs) Ugly American. You're an American, but it's different because you're not just visiting and taking pictures and telling people you are there. You've decided to dwell in this place. It's the only home you have now. And that's what happens for us when we meet Jesus. And the thing about it is because of his resurrection, that doesn't have to be make-believe we can actually interact with him and know him today. And if that marked your experience once, but since then your heart has grown cold, I say to you, don't give up. Don't give up. Ask him, and we're going to give you a chance to do that just in a little while, to ask Jesus to give you an experience of his nearness and presence and love for you that is profound. And we'll ask him to do that here in this room or sometime in our own lives in the very near future. Because some of us, we desperately want and need that to happen. And we're going to just ask him to do that in his kindness. And I'm going to give you a second thing here. 
Paul says, I want to know Jesus. But then he fleshes it out a little bit. He says, and here's the thing, I want to know Jesus and I want to know the power of his resurrection. What's the difference? Pastor Tim Keller at Redeemer Church makes a very helpful distinction. To know Jesus or to, to basically to know Jesus this way is to want to be with him all the time. To know Christ is to want to be with and around Christ, to be drawn to him as a person, to be energized by his presence, healed by his love, just enjoy being around him, but to want to know the power of his resurrection means you have this deep desire to become like him. Listen to what Paul says in his letter to the Romans. This is a very important piece of theology. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death. In order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, listen, we too might walk in newness of life. Did you catch that? In the same way that God the Father raised Jesus from the dead in power. That same power now is aimed at us, available to us, so that we can walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. If theological language makes you sleepy, here's what he's saying. The same power, bam! that made a dead man rise from his grave is the same power that is available to you and me today to see the dead parts of our soul come to life. There are some things you can change by reading a Malcolm Gladwell book and trying real hard for 10,000 hours. There are some things. I learned the bar chord not by supernatural divine intervention, but by good old-fashioned Asian stubbornness and pride. Bottom line is I couldn't let that guy be a better person than me. And so I learned bar chords as a form of revenge and pride. There are things you can fix by yourself. And those things you can fix by yourself, you really ought to work at it. You should. But there are things in you that aren't just broken, they're dead. Do you understand that a broken arm, you can go to the hospital and go, hey, this arm's broken. And the doctor will say, okay, you come to the right place. But if you go, hey, doc, this arm is dead. He's only got one answer for you. Let's get rid of it. You can't treat death. Do you understand that? There's no medicine for dead things. Dead things must be cut off and buried, burned discarded, dead things rot, dead things poison, and dead things spread sickness. There are things in your soul that are dead. They're not just troubled or weak or broken, and you can fix them by more praying, more Bible reading, more whatever. Sometimes church leads you to believe foolishness like that. Just keep throwing more religion at it, and you'll get out of it, buckaroo. Read a verse. 
say a prayer, but there are things in us that we cannot repair or revive simply by faithfulness. They are dead things which require divine power to be brought back to life. There's sadness, and then there's a kind of grief that makes something in a person die. There's annoyance, and then there's a kind of anger or bitterness that no longer is a characteristic of a person. It's not something they contain. It's something they have become. They are not angry people. They are anger itself, looking for something to clobber. I've known people like that. They are waiting for something to make them angry because it is now the only thing that feels anything close to life. There are things in people that die. And only one power is available to bring dead things back to life. The great personal hope of the resurrection of Jesus is that as I am bound to him in death through baptism, I am also raised to life through his resurrection power. That means those things which deep inside of me, no counselor, no therapist, no friend, no pastor, could seem to unlock or to unleash the power of God himself that raised Jesus from the dead can begin making you come alive inside. That's always going to be a work of God and a gift of God But we have to learn in those places where we're dead inside to stop working hard at our own self-discipline and work hard at crying out to God in desperation and humility and dependence. To say, God, there is something in me that isn't just broken, it is dead, it's flatlined. And maybe for you, it's just you have zero interest in spiritual things. Right now, it's all you can do to stay awake in this room, even as this world-class communicator is giving you a life-changing sermon. You can't stay awake. And it's not just because I'm boring. It's because at some point, hunger has died. You just have zero interest. Nothing moves you. Maybe it's people. You just cannot give a crud about your fellow human being. Everyone annoys you. Everyone's a jerk. Everyone is worthless. And you just can't seem to break out of that. I can't love people. I've tried. I can't really be happy. I can't feel safe. No matter what I do, something in me is really dead. And we learn in those times because of the resurrection of Jesus as a historical fact that real power exists to make dead things come to life. That's not just a once-for-all-time regeneration. That's not what I believe. I don't believe that the only time the resurrection power is available is at the moment of our conversion, when I was once far from God and have now been made alive in Christ. Because he says in his letter, we are to walk in newness of life. That resurrection power is not just a one-time Hit it and forget it event. It is every day the resurrection power is making all death in us come to life. That is how we walk. Walking is a verb of ongoing continuous action. I am tired of looking back in August 1984 to think about when God's power made me come alive. He did on that day. 
That was the day of my new birth, my spiritual birthday. But he still makes me come alive in dead places even now. And God knows that nothing else has worked. Will you turn to the resurrection power that raised Jesus from death so that you can come alive in the places in your soul where you're dead? Some of us need that more than we're willing to admit. Listen to the voices of the people who love you, who are saying to you something inside of you has died. It's not an indictment or a criticism. It is a loving warning that the thing that has died in you needs the power of Jesus' resurrection to come to life. I'll just finish with this last observation. Paul also throws in this last inconvenient little piece. There are things in the Bible I wish they just, I, I wish that the power went out before the word processor could finish the chapter. He says, I want to know Christ. I want to know the power of his resurrection. Amen. And participation in his sufferings. Dang it. Paul, you got to learn when to shut up. Just, you had such a good sermon. You had us. And then you threw in that last bit, and you lost all of America. Who wants to hear about suffering? Suffering sucks. Suffering is a disease to be cured. It's a problem to be alleviated. And yet, time and again in Scripture and throughout history, and in the lives of people you know right now, the greatest moments of God revealing himself have come in moments of suffering. We hear this, yet no one wants that experience. But listen to people who have truly suffered. You know, Paul, in in 1 Corinthians 11 and 12, he gives this embarrassing list of ways that he has suffered in the course of serving Jesus Christ. He lists things like hard work. And when Paul says hard work, I've got to imagine in that day and age, his hard work is way harder than our hard work. I was like, I had to like totally redo the code on this program. My fingers are killing me. I work so hard at my desk in my $1,000 Herman Miller chair, looking at the screen and thinking. And I got to imagine hard work was very different. He talks about multiple imprisonments, multiple beatings to near death, shipwrecks, and floating for days on the open sea. Life constantly on the run, the stress of constant danger from natural elements and from enemies. Persecution, not just in general, but like governors and mayors knowing him by name and saying, get that guy. They put a price on his head. He couldn't sleep at night. He was hungry. He was thirsty. He was cold and naked. And on top of all this, he says, if that weren't enough, I wrestled every day with my own sinful, wicked, rebellious heart. You want to talk about suffering? I have suffered a great deal. And all of this suffering happened while I was actively serving Jesus Christ. You know, most people, when they suffer like that while doing good, they get bitter. They're defeated by it. They reason, what is the point of living for God if this is the life I get in return? Have you ever felt that? 
or thought that? I have. It's a very fleshly thought, but it's also a very natural thought. Many people reason, and what it reveals is we're not really after Jesus. We're after something Jesus can give us. And if we don't get what he's supposed to give us, we don't need him. I mean, after all, what is the point of buying you dinner and taking to see Hamilton? And I paid 800 for the tickets, and you don't even give me a goodnight kiss. My goodness, forget it. And that's our attitude sometimes to Jesus. I did all this for you, and this is the life I got as a result. Really, what's the point? Anyone who's been in ministry for a long time has had those experiences. The ingratitude, the betrayals, the criticisms, all happening from people you attempted to serve, to actually help. I've had people who flouted my advice, did exactly the opposite of what I told them not to do, and then years later when all falls apart, they go, why didn't you warn me? How dare you? I'm like, oh my gosh. Really? I tried to get you not to, and then you did it, and that was my fault. It's hard when you suffer while you're doing right. And yet the amazing thing about Paul is that I once used to feel that way about suffering. It annoyed me. It defeated me. But now I welcome it because I have learned that even in and sometimes especially in my suffering, I gain more of Christ. Because he suffered, when I suffer, I connect with him in a way that I don't when I'm comfortable. I understand his heart and identify with him in my suffering, sometimes more radically than when I have everything. Do you know that I felt closer to my parents when I was in seminary than at any other time in my life? Because when I was in seminary, for the first time in my life, I did not have daddy's money. I was a grown man, and my daddy reminded me of it by saying, you now have a grown man's no money. This is my money now. You're not my baby. You're on your own. And through seminary, I experienced what it felt like to be poor for the first time in my life. And I'm not exaggerating when I say I literally did not know what I was going to eat from day to day. That's what my seminary experience is like. We would boil cabbage and dip it in soy sauce. If we ran out of soy sauce, it was a really depressing day in our house because there were seven of us seminarians living together, sharing 10 bucks a month for food. I suddenly identified with the stories of my parents that they told me when they lived through the Korean War. And they would dream. They would tell me stories of kids in the neighborhood who would hide outside the window of a restaurant. And they had a little spoonful of rice, but they wanted to smell the meat cooking in the restaurant. And they couldn't eat the meat, but just the smell flavored their rice. I'm like, that's pathetic and ridiculous. And then I understood. I even suggested to my roommates, hey, let's go outside Denny's and eat this rice. Maybe it works. You know, it's a funny thing. When someone you love and admired has suffered, it is in suffering that you finally begin to know them. My parents would say, you just wait till you have kids and then you will love us more. (sighs) You have no idea. 
the things that I put my parents through, well, let's just say it all comes back around. <laughs> comes back. I love you kids, wherever you are, but it comes back. <laughs> Suffering can take on new value and new meaning because the resurrected Jesus knows what suffering is. And I know sometimes we say, I'm suffering, where are you? He is right there. And maybe the reason that suffering is allowed to persist is because you're looking for him to take you out of the suffering rather than to stand with you in it. And that's the prize he's trying to give you. I am not just a fire extinguisher or an escape hatch, Jesus wants to say to you. I am your comfort and your strength right now in the midst of it. I can't promise you that your trials will go away, that you'll be out of that wheelchair someday, that you'll regain sight in your eye, or that the cancer will go into remission. I can't promise any of those things to you. But in the unfolding, unknowable plan of God's life for each of us, one thing he has promised is what he said to his disciples before he ascended. Surely I will always be with you to the very end. That's what he promised us. I will be with you to the very end. And we will not understand the comfort of knowing Jesus until knowing Jesus is the comfort we are seeking and not just relief from our trials. Easter is a great opportunity to renew our relationship with Jesus. And if it's been a while since you thought about recommitting your heart to him, today is a great opportunity to do just that. The short time we have remaining, I'm going to ask you to do something Kind of bold. We got a little practice doing that at our Refocus Revival Weekend. But I'm going to ask you as a public sign of humility and reliance upon God, if you're willing to do it, and just because you're not willing to stand doesn't mean you shouldn't do this in your own heart, okay? Don't get me wrong. But I always found it helpful when I'm trying to do something significant inside not to keep it a big secret because I'm my own worst enemy. What I keep secret usually dies with me. And so sometimes I find just simply rising and saying, I stand up for this. I identify with this. This is what I am responding to is very helpful. If you want to ask God to resurrect your hunger to know him, to be with him, to be like him. If it's been a long time since you felt spiritual hunger, And all you felt is numbness and coldness and apathy for so long. If you haven't had a real smile crack your face in a long time, and you're tired of living like this in defeat and sadness, if you want that, you can ask him. He wants to give it to you, and it's important that we learn in humility to just ask him. If there's something that has died in your soul or if your soul itself feels dead and all the good advice and all the Bible studies have not helped and you sense that I need something like divine intervention, 
I'm not saying through the Bible reading, the prayer, the intervention can't come. But there are moments when we say, I can't work my way through this. I need you, God, in this moment, in power right now. You've got to take me over that big hump at the start of this journey. Something is dead, not broken. And I need you to make it come back to life. Resurrection power. If you're suffering, and you find that your suffering is pulling you away from God and not towards Him, if you're suffering, but the suffering is wasted in bitterness and conflict and a toxic environment in your home, if there's no joy, no intimacy, and your suffering is just poisoning the well you drink from every day, you can ask God to redeem your suffering so instead of being wasted in bitterness, He can use your suffering to reveal Himself to you. To tell you that in this suffering now, not in the rescue, but in the suffering itself, I can be with you and strengthen you. If you want to ask God for any of those things right now, I'm going to ask you to take a bold step of faith and don't worry about who's around you or what they might think. Welcome the conversations that might happen because of what you do. I'm going to ask you to stand right now. And as you're standing, I'm going to ask you simply to pray a prayer of humility and dependence. And I'm not standing just because I'm preaching. I'm standing because I'm going to tell you in all honesty, I need this touch from him right now. I need it for my life in ministry. I need it for my personal walk. I need it for my marriage, for my parenting. I want to be fully alive and in love with hungering for Jesus in my own life. I am not okay with coldness and deadness in here. And if that's where you are right now, I'm going to ask you just to stand with me and let's pray. And if you see someone around you, would you just pray in love for them? That God would give them what they are courageously and faithfully asking Him for. As a gift, freely, not something earned. We're asking God to do this. Let's pray that He will give it to us. So let's pray right now together. Jesus. Sometimes an entire life is changed in a single moment of honest prayer. And if as you stood today, from the depths of your heart, you wanted a newness of life. If that's what you ask God for, then have faith that the very thing you asked him for is what he wants to give you. He will never delay longer than is necessary to give you everything that your soul needs. Don't give up. Don't walk away. Newness of life, hope, comes from the resurrection power of Jesus that brings what is dead back to life. Now that you've prayed, know that God has heard you And be watchful and humble. Wait for his answer, for it is surely coming. Because he loves you and he is able. We thank you.
that that's true, God. That we haven't asked for anything other than what you've been yearning to give us. Find in our hearts humility and dependence and desperation and fill our emptiness with Jesus. We ask in his name. Amen. Thanks for listening to the sermon from Harvest Community Church. If you would like more information or have any questions or comments, check out our website at harvest-community.org. Thanks for listening.